0: Praise the Lord. This morning we're, after a year or so investment in the book of Matthew, we're coming in to the finish line of that wonderful and powerful part of the New Testament. I believe Peter Todd, it's either next week or very soon, is going to be taking us to the very final verse of the book, I am with you always. How the book ends, what a marvelous promise. This morning we want to look at the the great commission scene therein Matthew 28 that leads up to the promise that Christ will be with us. So let's look together we'll have it on the screen. This is Matthew 28 I'll we'll start at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him they worshiped him but some doubted. Let me just interject very briefly here because it will help clarify what's going on in the text. It's my view that what Matthew intends by saying some doubted, he's implying some of them, of the eleven. If you feel like you're doubting sometimes, well, you've got good company. The original disciples, we'll come back to that in a moment. They were there, they were worshipping him. But there was something else contesting, at least in a few of them, something was contesting that worship, a doubt, a wavering. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They were wavering, some of them, but he comes to them. They were worshiping him, but he comes to them, and then he gives them the answer to their wavering, which is Him. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Him. If we're wavering, that's where to focus. Verse 19, "...go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you." And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what we've learned to call the Great Commission, and that's an apt title for what Christ does here. And what we want to look at in the next few minutes is why the Great Commission is good news. And the first reason that Matthew rolls out in front of us is the Great Commission is good news because it commissions flawed missionaries. And you know what? That's the only kind there is, is flawed missionaries. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, again getting back into the text, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Why does Jesus summoned the disciples all the way up from Jerusalem, where he has died, and then risen again. And he has them go clear up to, uh, to, I was about to say gateway, (laughs) Um, Galilee, starts with a G. That's several days walk, even if you're a robust walker. He takes them back. I think there's, this is a bit of a, a regroup and reconnect time before he leaves them by ascending into heaven, which that means they have to go all the way back yet to Jerusalem again for that. This is a reconnect and a regroup situation. Why Galilee and why a mountain? You know why? Because it takes them back to their roots. It's the same Jesus. He's the same Jesus. He's died. Now he's been raised. He's the same Jesus. He says, let's get together up where it all started, back on our home turf. You know, we're all Galileans, aren't we guys? He's saying. And not only is it Galilee, it's a mountain. It's very tempting to wonder, is this Perhaps the same mountain where it all begins in chapter 5. A year or so ago, I stood at the same pulpit and preached on the Beatitudes, part of the introduction into the sermon on the mountain. I can't say it's the same place, but maybe it was. Same Jesus, same disciples, once again on a mountain, reconnecting with Him. Why does Matthew then... In this powerful time of reconnecting and rest- restoring after all that's gone on, why does he mention that some were wavering? In most English Bibles, it says in verse 17, but some doubted. I think a better translation is probably wavered. Waver- wavered. They were wavering. Why does, he, why does Matthew bring that in? Here's a clue. The word he uses here in in the Greek for doubt or waver is only used twice, a grand total of twice in the whole New Testament. One of those twice is here in Matthew 28. The only other one is also in the book of Matthew, and it's back in chapter 14, where Christ is walking on the sea, one of his most dramatic miracles. And he calls Simon Peter to come out of the boat and walk with him, with Jesus, on the sea. Peter does just to do that. It's Matthew 14, verse 31, if you want to look it up. And Peter's walking on the sea, just like the Lord Jesus. But then he looks at the wind. He sees the wind, and he hears the roaring of the waves. And like a million or a billion other Christians from time to time, he becomes afraid, and he starts to sink. Jesus then, and he calls out. He does the appropriate thing. You know, there's no crime in wavering. Jesus calls us out of the wavering, but he doesn't condemn us when we're in it. And Peter calls out. He does the right thing. Lord, save me. He's sinking, and he says, Lord, save me. That's a good prayer, you know. Lord, save me. If you can't think of what else to pray, Try that. That's a good prayer. And Jesus reaches out, grabs him. I kind of envision it in my own mind. One of these. These sort of hand-to-hand and hand-on-forearm mutual holding on to each other. And then Jesus says this. Oh, you of little faith. See, there's a bit of an admonition there. An affectionate admonition. There's no condemnation. But he does say, why did you waver? Wavering is when you... Begin to walk into something, and then you have second thoughts. You start to get scared. When I was, I think, 14, I spent a summer in Vermont, and my friends and I went uh, swimming one day on this beautiful, wonderful lake, and and uh, there was a tree that extended its... The, the, the whole tree extended out because it was on the bank, and it was tilting, this tree, huge tree, tilting very noticeably, out over the edge of the lake, over... The water, and we found out that you could climb all the way up to the tree and out on one of these limbs. And then, once you got your nerve up, which took me a while, you can jump right off of this limb and down into the lake. And it was quite a height. I stood there and I had the first experience in my life. I was 14 then, and I discovered what it means to waver. (laughs) Eventually, I got up my nerve and I jumped. Very thrilling, exciting. There was another boy in the group, Tommy, and he waited to go last. He was a bit antsy about heights. He climbed up the tree, and he stood there and stood there, and we almost forgot about him. I think we made a campfire or something at the bottom of the tree. We were sitting around talking, and we had forgotten that Tommy was still up in the top of the tree. And about an hour later, we were sitting at the fire, and we hear this voice from the top of the tree. I almost went that time. He almost went. And maybe you look, hear that and you think, that's the story of my life. I've almost went because I wavered. Why does Matthew put this in here? He puts this in here to encourage us. If we're wavering, well, go to the only other waver moment in the entire New Testament. What do you see happen? Peter did waver, but then he did the right thing. He called that great prayer, Lord, save me. And Jesus did. Oh, you of little faith, why did you waver? He pulls him back up and Peter is indeed saved. We have this picture in the screen here of broken old clay pots that will remind you, I trust, of 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. A verse I love, Second Corinthians 4 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassing power of belongs to God and not to us. Do you know God loves to put his treasure in clay vessels? Chipped, cracked, limited unspectacular in themselves. I think the picture is very apt. God loves to put his riches there because it highlights that the treasure, the greatness of the treasure is not about the clay vessels. It's about the treasure. The treasure we carry is the presence of Christ. The treasure we carry is the good news about Jesus. And we do carry that, but we are clay vessels A few chapters later in that same letter, 2 Corinthians, we read this. uh, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5. But we we were afflicted. Paul is recalling to the Corinthians a particularly stressful time in his ministry. He says, we were afflicted at every turn. Some of you know what that feels like. Maybe right now you do. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, the Greek there is plural, fightings and fears, plural again, within. I take huge encouragement from that. Someone of the caliber, someone of the stature of the Apostle Paul says, you want to know what it was like? There was a season there that time where it was fightings without and fears within. This is St. Paul. This is St. Paul who gave us something like 13 books of the New Testament. This is Paul. And you know what? If God used him despite his fears within, he can use us. God went on to use Simon Peter very dramatically at Pentecost, writing two New Testament epistles, despite the fact that he had to get pulled out of a wavering moment. The Great Commission is good news because it... Commissions flawed missionaries. If you're thinking, am I of any potential use to God? The answer is in this scene. This is the great commission. And even at that pivotal moment in church history, we've got disciples wavering and Jesus still sends them. Now, let's see what that's all about. And He makes the transition out of the wavering into something very different and much better. So, that's the first reason that the Great Commission is good news. Because it commissions flawed missionaries. It's the only con there is. Reason number two why the Great Commission is good news. Because it points us to a new king. Jesus says this in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Church historians will tell us that the rallying cry of the very earliest church was a three word cry Jesus is Lord. That was their proclamation. That stood right there alongside him dying for our sins is the fact that he was Lord. They lived in a culture where people like Caesar and Herod and others had absolute power and could, be, could assign you to be crucified if they were in a bad mood that day. And other than call on God, there was not much you could do about it. So people wondered, who really has control of the world? Who really has control over my life? Those were not theoretical questions in those days. They were very real, true-to-life questions. And the church discovered and preached it wherever they went, whatever may be happening around you circumstantially, at the end of the day... Caesar, Herod, and that lot don't have ultimate control because God has turned ultimate control over to his own son, Jesus. And that's why we call him Lord. And we say, however great Caesar is, according to Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus is far above all rule and authority, Caesar included. He's far above it. Part of the background to this moment when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, comes like everything else from the Old Testament and a chapter that is worth meditating on and spending some time in, with a, particularly with a study Bible with notes and whatnot, and that's uh, Daniel chapter 7. It's about a vision Daniel has in a dream. Of the four great beasts, many of you will be familiar with this part of the book of Daniel, he sees this parade of these four dreadful, dark, menacing, intimidating creatures. They are very large and very powerful. There's a lion followed by a bear, followed by a leopard, followed by one that Daniel doesn't give a name to except that it's worse than the other three put together and very dark and very evil. I call it Godzilla on steroids. That's the first beast, the the fourth beast, excuse me. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and and then Godzilla which happens in the end, corresponds to Rome, the Roman Empire. Now, what does Daniel see God do? The reason these beasts are so bad is because they are powerful. They're empires. And Daniel says, God, he, as it were, it's a dream. It doesn't make sense in everyday language and way of seeing things, but God reaches out and he takes something away from the beasts. Dominion. He takes away their dominion. Visualize perhaps him lifting a crown, a king's crown off of the beast's head, okay? Off the beast's heads. And he reassigns the dominion. And in Daniel 7, it's one of the earliest places in the, in the whole Bible where we start to be, read about this mysterious and very powerful figure simply called the Son of Man. You go to the four Gospels, and what is Jesus' favorite title for himself? He called himself the Son of Man. Daniel says God took the dominion away from the lion, the bear, the leopard, and Godzilla, and he reassigned the dominion to the Son of Man. That is why Jesus can say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Great Commission is good news because it points us to a new king. What is our beast? We all have beasts. It might not be a lion, a bear, a leopard, or Godzilla. It may be your boss. It may be thoughts in your mind. Pardon me, keep fussing with this thing. My, my ear isn't the right size. It may be a relationship, something that's going on, someone in, in crowding into your life that's manipulative and causing difficulty. The, the phrase we get frequently in the epistles, principalities and powers, like dark, cosmic, spiritual and evil forces, that can be our beasts. Our beasts can also be something internal in our minds. If you go to Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4, Paul talks about strongholds. Strongholds that affect the way we think. That's why this thing we're starting tomorrow night about having a biblical, God-centered worldview, learning to think God's way is hugely important. Tomorrow is just a kickoff of something that's going to develop over numbers of months, so it's just a beginning. But it's hugely important. Your beasts might be in the way you think. Things like anger, fear, guilt, depression, whatever. Now, we're... Exploring why all this is good news, and here's the good news. This is why this is good news for those waverers there on the side of this hill in Galilee. It's good news because of this. If God has taken the authority from the beasts and reassigned it to Jesus, that means we don't have to serve our beasts. Whatever your beasts may be, well, we've got good news for you because of Christ, because he has the dominion now. We serve him, and we don't have to serve anything or anyone else. We can even say to those things, you know, there's a place to talk back to the devil. There's a place to talk even, I would argue, to our own fears, The psalmists do that all the time. One of my favorite psalms that God has used dramatically in my life is Psalm 103, which is one of several psalms that begin and end by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. You see what he's doing? He's talking to himself. He's telling his soul what to do. And that is very mentally healthy, to tell our souls to bless the Lord and to not serve their fears. We can say to our souls, soul, all authority in heaven and on earth with no qualifications, no exceptions, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, including authority over my life, my future, my choices, my relationships. He is Lord over all of that because God has made him Lord over all of that. That's why this is good news. That's why our wavering doesn't have to be the end of the story because God has given us someone that's bigger than our wavering. He pulled Peter out of the sea and he'll pull us out of our doubts and out of our fears. The Great Commission is good news because it points us to a new king, a new king. Reason number three that the Great Commission is good news is that it gives us a new way to live when the lord sends them he gives them fairly specific instructions as to what their mission is going to be all about go into all uh, go make disciples of all nations baptizing them and teaching them i'm doing it in shorthand i didn't give all the details but there's two key elements in the actual assignment he gives them. Baptizing and teaching people to obey. So when the gospel goes forth and people start embracing the gospel, there's a two-fold or a two-sided response that they need to make. One is to receive baptism. It's interesting that baptisms come up several times this morning already. Maybe the Lord's giving you a nudge about it's time to get baptized. That was part of the New Testament church's early mission is baptizing people. On the back of being baptized, they would be taught to obey everything Jesus taught. Love your enemy. Cut off the hand that makes you sin. That's, this is obedience. Be bold in representing Christ. Don't be ashamed of him. Putting him first in everything we do. Marriage, relationships, finance, whatever it is. We have this picture. That's not me on that bicycle. I wish it was. I don't have a, as nice a bicycle as that. <laughs> I was down at MEC yesterday, getting my daughter's bicycle serviced. It needed it. They had to have a bicycle in there. For, the asking price is three thousand dollars. I thought, yow, I don't think I'll buy that today. Wonderful. That's got nothing to do with this sermon. <laughs> When you ride a bicycle, everyone knows this, it's down up, down up, left left foot down, right foot down, left foot down, right foot down. I think that's an apt word picture of what walking with the Lord is all about. There was a point, if you if you've been baptized already, which likely most of us have, you know what happens when you get baptized? It's a gesture you make. Even baptism is a step of obedience, no question about it. However, There's a part of the moment of baptism that's got nothing to do with you. It's got nothing to do with you showing up at the right time for the service and being religious and pious and obedient and all that. There's something that happens in baptism according to Romans 6. Have a look at that chapter. God steps in and does something. He joins you to Jesus. This is not something we can do, whatever. It's something God has to do. And God, according to Romans, joins us to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. That's part of why in the New Testament and in our practice here at Gateway, we do baptism by immersion because it so vividly illustrates death. In baptism, Paul says in Colossians, in baptism we were buried with him. Buried, that means you die. My former self that controlled me and messed me up by disobeying God all the time, that guy is buried. And this is the funeral. That's what the the baptism is all about. So we're joined to him in his death, but praise the Lord, unless they hold you under too long, you're also joined to him in his resurrection. You, You come up out of the water representing Christ's resurrection and showing that we believe God is raising us up. These are things only God can do. Only he can join us to Christ's death. Only he can join us to the resurrection. So that's the one pedal. It's the pedal that says, I trust God. I believe in God. I'm trusting him to do what he alone can do. Amen. But then the other pedal has got to come down. The Holy Spirit might start giving you a nudge about the way you treat someone close to you. The Holy Spirit starts to give you a nudge about looking at porn on the internet. The Holy Spirit starts to nudge you about, are you going to worship God with your finance? That's the other pedal, because those are the things that we have to do. I haven't left town, just a minute. I'm trying to find the, the way forward in the notes here. Wonderful. Wonderful. Faith, the believing pedal, is for people like me that believing that God can speak through his word the gospel. That's the down pedal, that's the left pedal. God, I'm trusting you to do what only you can do. You now John Piper has a sermon came out this week on his website it was and it was not good news it says the Holy Spirit won't preach the sermon for you I thought oh really (laughs) because then you prep you pray but there's the time you've got to get up and do what I'm doing this morning the believing God pedal is trusting God to speak through his word capital W the obeying pedal is jolly well standing up and preaching the believing pedal is trusting in God to provide, particularly like in practical things like finance. Velma and I are, for all intents and purposes, retired now. We're scarcely wealthy. We're, so far, we're managing to pay the bills. We've managed to pay the rent, which is helpful because my landlord is my daughter. That's an interesting situation. <laughs> so I have to pay the rent. We're trusting God to do it, and he's, he's getting us through it. So that's the pedal. Lord, I want to worship you in my giving, even like with the, building this new property up in, in West St Paul. I have to believe you, whatever the stresses may seem like, whatever the, uh, the balance sheet and my, my ledger and my bookkeeping program, whatever it may be seeming to say, "I believe you 're faithful you 'll look after us if we tithe and then give even above a tithe in terms of the, seeing the, building exp- the the property expand when i 've seen these drawings of this building that we're asking God to give us and I've heard some of the numbers flying around I think yikes I don't know how meaningfully I can contribute because we're talking millions of dollars in a very very elaborate and nice place that we're asking God to give us as we're faithful and as he is faithful I think I don't know how much I, I look at it and I think you know I could maybe give enough sorry I could maybe put together enough to buy the floor mat I think I'm okay Ron thanks bless you I don't get along with microphones I I could maybe put together enough this is how I've been thinking recently and I don't want to be restricted by this down the road to help put in the money that would equate to buying the floor mats for the front entrance I think wouldn't that be nice people would walk in and we could put up a sign Dave Perry floor mat you know in, in the front entrance I'm just being silly There's the time to say, God, I'm trusting you. You are supernaturally faithful. I'm going to trust you to look after us, even as we give maybe more than we think mathematically we can manage to give. The pedal says, God's faithful. That's the faith pedal. But then at some point, I need to sit down and write out a check. This new way to live is about both pedals. It's about both pedals. At any point in our life, in our lives, there's probably both of these going on. Right now, maybe you're saying, Lord, I, I need to put down that faith pedal." There's things going on in my life. It, right at the moment, it's simply finding out what's it going to look like to trust. What's it going to look like with the things we're dealing with? to rely on God, to rest in God, to trust in God, to be at peace in God, to lie down in the green pastures. Maybe that's the pedal you're needing to concentrate on at the moment. And if so, do it, go for it. There's other times when it's the obedience pedal. Some practical things need to be addressed. And we need to say, you know what, despite my wavering, despite my limitations, my insecurities, my yada, 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 despite being a Tommy out on the far limb of that tree and looking down and thinking, yikes, the time comes to jump. The time comes to jump. And God will help us on both sides of that equation. The Great Commission is good news because it gives us a new way to live. Pedal one, pedal two. Here are some takeaways. Can we have that next slide? Great, thank you. Here's six questions to ask this morning as we are going to have communion now, and then we'll wrap up. Am I worshiping Jesus? A lot that question deserves a lot more attention than we gave it this morning in this talk. Am I worshiping Jesus? That's how the gospel of Matthew begins and ends. It begins with the magi. They come from the east, possibly from Persia, and they worshiped Jesus. Now, fittingly, at the very end of the book of Matthew, we find people doing the same thing, worshiping Jesus. The first time it was Gentiles. Now it's Jews that are going to go out to the nations of the earth. It begins, the gospel begins and ends with worship. And I mean gospel both as a a literary document like Matthew, but also the gospel as a life-changing message. It begins and ends with worship. Am I worshiping Jesus too? Will I bring him my wavering? And follow him. You know how you bring him your wavering? You pray that great prayer. Lord, save me. That's a good prayer. Three, do I see him as Lord of heaven and earth? That's worth meditating on for six months. Lord, just that phrase, Lord of heaven and earth. Let that get hold of you and grip you. Four, do I get it? Because Jesus is Lord, I don't have to serve my beasts. You know what? Can we say that together on three? I don't have to serve. Okay, ready? One, two, three. I don't have to serve my beasts. That'll change our lives, you know, getting hold of that. Number five, where at this point in my life in the spring of 2018, where do I need to press down on the believe pedal? Maybe the Lord's asking you to get baptized. Maybe He's asking you to trust Him in some area like you haven't been trusting Him before. And where, at this point in my life, in the spring of 2018, do I need to jolly well obey Him in something?